like a lucky horseshoe, the Dalles runs along a bend on the south side of the Columbia River. In the 80s, this sleepy little town had just a few thousand people, but it was still the largest community in rural Wasco County. Fishing and farming were popular activities in this beautiful part of north central Oregon. Once night fell, there was little more than a movie theater and a Shakey's Pizza to keep folks entertained. One Sunday night in 1984, the owner of that pizza place was getting ready to call it a day when he suddenly doubled over in pain, racked with stomach cramps, nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea. Dave Lutkins would later recall it was the worst he'd ever felt in his life. His wife soon became ill as well, and the couple decided it was time to go to the hospital. What they saw there was shocking. The waiting room was already full of people similarly doubled over in pain. They were lining the hallways, patients in every exam room, nurses, doctors, and other hospital staff rushing around trying to make more space as the ill continued streaming through the doors. Within the next week, nearly half of the Shakey's 28 employees and dozens of their customers came down with the same kinds of complaints. Dave began to worry. How did this happen? Could it have been something in the salad bar? that was so popular with the Shakey's crowd, or maybe an employee who wasn't diligent about their hygiene. The local health department started asking questions as well, as the number of ill continued to climb, 100 cases, then 200, and they discovered that some of the patients hadn't eaten at Shakey's at all, but at a different restaurant in town. A pathologist identified the problem as salmonella, a common bacteria that can contaminate food, there was nothing common about how this outbreak was spreading. In the end, more than 700 people would fall ill in less than a month. And it wasn't just one or two restaurants involved, but nearly a dozen all across the Dalles and the surrounding area. Most of those who fell ill reported eating at salad bars. So the county ordered all salad bars shut down and they called in the CDC. Health investigators spoke with patients and their families, inspected restaurants and suppliers, tested the water supply and soil samples. Salmonella was found in coffee creamer at one restaurant and in the blue cheese salad dressing in another. But the question remained, how did it get there? The CDC decided it must have been a case of poor hygiene. Someone who didn't wash their hands after using the bathroom must have touched the items on the salad bar. It seemed far-fetched, given how many restaurants were involved, but they simply couldn't see any other possible explanation. But nearby, in the tiny town of Antelope, they had a different theory. They pointed to a mysterious religious leader from India and his thousands of followers who'd recently built a massive commune that they proclaimed promoted a kind of spiritual rebirth. This is what sannyas is. A process of rebirth, a process of being born again. It was hard to fathom this mild-mannered messiah could have been behind such a violent attack. But in the end, even the great Bhagwan himself pointed the finger at a member of his flock. His second-in-command, in fact, and personal secretary, Ma Anand Sheila. I challenge Sheila if she has any guts then come here and face me. But was Sheila behind the poisonings? Or was it done on the Bhagwan's orders? Why would this group of free-loving farmers, practitioners of meditation, pursuers of spiritual awakening, target their small-town neighbors in what had become one of the largest bioterrorism attacks in the nation's history? And why did it take the FBI nearly a year to figure it all out? I'm Kim Shepard with Carolyn Osorio, and this is the scene of the crime. Yeah, this is such a crazy case. So many twists and turns. And yet, Kim, it's sort of ironic that the definition of a commune is defined as a group of people living together and sharing possessions and responsibilities. It's so simple on the face of it, but I'm loath to say it as someone whose favorite song is John Lennon's Imagine, 
beware of someone <laughs> who's trying to sell you a utopian society. I mean, it's really easy to say, but it's so, I don't think that we've ever been able to do it here, right? Right. So we'll have some more specific ideas of what you can do if you think you might come across a cult or might know someone in a cult, how to identify that and how to help them out of it. But this story in particular was a subject of a Netflix docuseries a few years back called Wild Wild Country. It's a really interesting series with a lot of compelling first-person interviews, but I have to say they left so much out. I was a little bit disappointed as I researched the story how much they left out of that series, starting with how Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh and his followers, known as Rajneeshis, wound up in Oregon in the first place. Starting in the 60s, Bhagwan traveled all around India teaching meditation and promoting the idea of sexual freedom. He earned the nickname The Sex Guru. And in the early 70s, he started his first commune in India. People came from all over the world to sit at his feet, listen to his speeches, take part in his wild meditation practices, which we'll get more into in a little bit. But according to Wild Wild Country, the Rajneeshis couldn't find anyone in India that would sell them a decent piece of land. They say they were the target of religious persecution by the majority group, which followed Hinduism. But what the Netflix series fails to mention is that the Rajneeshis were also under investigation on a number of criminal charges, the largest of which was tax fraud. And that was likely why they weren't able to buy any land in India. According to an article in The Oregonian, by the time they left India in 1981, they had an unpaid tax bill of more than $4 million and probably worth a whole lot more in India than it would be in the U.S., While the group tried to claim tax exemption as a religious organization, they were also raking in a ton of money. And the Bhagwan himself made it very clear that he was a strong believer in capitalism. In fact, the Rajneeshis set up their own independent banking system. So all those European and American tourists would spend every penny they brought with them there at the ashram, not outside in the surrounding town. Not only was the group selling meditation sessions and seats in the lecture halls, but they were selling books, the red clothing that was worn by everyone at the ashram, posters of the Bhagwan and other trinkets and knickknacks with his picture on them, something that a spiritual tourist could use to remember this visit. Well, it's interesting because... They really, you know, as far as capitalism, they're really selling a lot. They're selling a lifestyle. When you have communes, there's, you know, alternative family communities, co-living situations, cooperatives, countercultural, egalitarian, political, mystical. I mean, they're just a You're whole bunch. You're losing me already. Yeah, there's so many different there, variations. <laughs> there is, but but they offer like almost all of those in this package that they are selling to all of these devotees. And if you see that documentary, although the factual stuff going on isn't like, I wish I would have known that when I watched it, but this, as they descended in Oregon en masse, I mean, it was crazy the amount of followers that that the, this, this guy had. I mean, it's incredible. And still has around the world. So speaking of the documentary, like why are they wearing... Not only red, but like orange and purple, too. There's like these different color schemes, but they're very identifiable yeah. as as it's members like a, of this group. A red or a burnt orange or, yeah. So according to a 1985 report in the Los Angeles Times, the Bhagwan had decreed that all the Rajneeshi should wear red because the color represented the sunrise. And one of the major tenets of this belief system is the idea of rebirth as an enlightened human being. This is what sannyas is. A process of rebirth. A process of being born again. And one of the ways to achieve that rebirth is through meditation, but not necessarily the kind of meditation that you're used to. The Bhagwan had this concept of a sort of radical meditation that could happen just about any time. It's more like a super awareness of what's happening in your body at any one moment. So during some of their meditation practices, they might even have people screaming, jumping around, beating on themselves, beating on each other. But 
all while having this keen awareness of how that screaming or jumping or beating is making them feel. It's supposed to be getting you in touch with your inner spirituality somehow. And he even promoted meditation during sex. Bhagwan gave a lecture in which he described how the Christian culture ruined sex for people in the West. He said the missionary position is unnatural that the woman should always be on top so she can fully express her sexuality and therefore become fully immersed in it and meditate during the act of sex. He explained that this hyper-awareness could also help a couple climax at the same time and talked about why that's so important to the meditation that's happening during sex, what couples should do after sex. He described the setting in which people should have sex, that whenever possible, you should have a room in your house dedicated to nothing else, not even sleeping. He's not talking about a bedroom. He's talking about a sex chamber. You know, and this is a lot of pressure. (laughs) There's a lot of pressure on the rules, right? But if you watch a video of what this actually looked like, I mean, you did a great job of describing it, but the video watching it happen, you've got all these people dressed in either orange or red. Or naked. Or or in there in different stages of wearing clothes. You know, you've got a bunch of guys in like Speedos and just, I mean, it's just all over the map, right? So it takes 30 minutes for them to get into the state. They first start like, you know, doing this physical thing. And on the surface of it, I could see how people buy into that. Like, yeah, I'm really pent up. I've got a lot of stuff going on in my life. I want to scream like I'm a toddler again, right? And this goes on for like 30 minutes. And so, and then there's this beating drum to it. And it's really intense to say say the least. So I, I'm not surprised to hear there was like a sexual component. And there was some conflict about whether or not the Rajneeshis believe in marriage. Basically, um, from what I was seeing in different interviews with the leaders, it's like, it's not that they don't believe in marriage, but it's more that they don't believe in telling people who, when, how they should have sex. Mm-hmm. So even if you're married, you should still have sexual freedom was kind of there. But it's but they were very like laissez-faire, like whatever you want to do, whatever makes you happy and gets you in touch with your spiritual self and helps you get closer to this rebirth and reawakening. And I can see how that on itself is not a bad thing. Right. You know, it's right. I could see why somebody would be like, yeah, I want to be free. I want to do what I want to do. And, and especially and- in the 60s and 70s, when you're following the 50s, which were so very strict about society societal rules and especially a woman's role and, you know, not being a sexual object and things like that. You know, there was this freedom, right, in the 60s and 70s that came along. And and this just like took it to another level. (laughs) For sure. Another major pillar of this belief system is that communism and socialism are evil and that capitalism is the best thing for both individuals and society as a whole. And this, I think, is actually the most controversial part of the Bagwan's teachings, even more so than that obsession with sex. Not only did he say that he supported capitalism, but he gave lectures about how other so-called do-gooders were actually hurting people by clinging to this idea of selflessness. And here's an example of that in this lecture where the Bagwan talked about why Gandhi wasn't really the saint that everybody made him out to be. He used to drink goat's milk because that is the cheapest and the poorest of people can afford it. Hang in there. I, I, I'm, I, I'm struggling. Naturally, everybody is conditioned with the idea immediately appreciates that what a great man he is. Stay with me. Okay. But you don't know about his goat. (laughs) (laughs) I'm a little crazy. I don't care about Mahatma Gandhi much, but I care certainly about the goat. I inquired everything about the goat and I found that his goat was being every day bathed with Lux toilets, <laughs> soap, the foot of the goat consisted in those days worth 10 rupees. 10 rupees was 
the salary of a school teacher for one month. Somebody's having a good time but there. Nobody will look into these matters. Yeah, so basically what he's saying is that if Gandhi really cared about the poor, he wouldn't drink the goat's milk, he would sell the goat and give the money to the poor. Yeah, I don't understand what his deal is with Gandhi. Like, why <laughs> couldn't he just say, hey, I believe in capitalism? Oh, you know, because back in the 80s, Gandhi, you know, there's a movie, he was really popular. We now know a lot more about Gandhi than than what we did back then, which I don't even want to get into that. But why did he have to throw shade Gandhi's way? About I think it? it was more to build himself up. You know, when you want to build yourself up as the leader, as the person who knows about spiritual awakening and meditation, and when there's someone else who is also teaching similar ideas, but with different practices. You know, and obviously you're not getting the money from those folks. You want to make sure that you are seen as the enlightened one, as the spiritual leader. And what other way to do that than to tear others down? Yeah, but he's not taking on any political causes, right? The Bhagwan. He's just trying to amass people to his way of thinking. I think his his bank account right, is right. his political cause. So, so now we've gotten to know the Bhagwan and the Rajneeshi beliefs a little bit. So let's talk about how they wound up in Oregon, of all places. The second in command at the commune in India was a woman named Ma Anandshila. She was the Bhagwan's personal secretary. And if you've ever watched Game of Thrones, you can imagine she is the hand of the king. So basically, <laughs> her word is seen as the word of the Bhagwan. Anything she requests, any orders she gives, they're seen as coming directly from the great leader himself. So the Bhagwan told Sheila to go to the United States to create a utopia, a self-sustaining city separate from the rest of the world where the Rajneeshis could meditate to get closer to that spiritual awakening and rebirth. Rick Ross is a cult expert, a deprogrammer, and founder of the Cult Education Institute. He also worked personally with several families connected with the Rajneeshis. And Ross says the Bhagwan knew how to weave a narrative that would be attractive to wealthy Westerners who'd been disenfranchised with those strict societal rules that they'd grown up with. This was a man who had a PhD. He was very intelligent. He had these seminar series and lectures that he had in Pune. And then he moved to the U.S. And the idea was that he was going to create this idealized community of greater awareness, sexual awareness, awareness about the world, that they would be the cutting edge of change in the world and that this was going to be a marvelous experience. And so these people all came there with that in mind, that he was the ultimate teacher, that they were his acolytes and students and that they together would form this ideal community. And when his effort to create his utopia in India didn't pan out, he started looking abroad. And in fact, there were small communes that were actually set up in more than a dozen countries around the world. But he decided that America would be their mecca. He was a very smart guy, very well educated. And he had determined that, you know, the U.S. was very lax in regards to religious nonprofits and that you could use the First Amendment to shield you and protect you as many religious cults do. So Rajneesh realized, this is what I want to do. I want to get out of India. I want to go to the United States. And I want to go to where the real money is, because he was basically making a lot of money in India off of Westerners that were coming from uh, Western Europe, from the U.S., Canada. And now he decided, why not move to where the money really is? I'm going to go to the U.S. and set up my own compound. And Sheila, the secretary, happened to be married to an American named John Shelfer. And it was his name that they used to purchase the Big Muddy Ranch in Wasco County, Oregon, for nearly $6 million. The property sat on more than 64,000 acres in what had been farmland but was no longer arable because of overuse. They couldn't use it as farmland anymore, so it just had a very low property value. The ranch was a mixture of low rolling hills, sprawling valleys, a small river ran through it, and around the edges were rocky bluffs that created a sort of fortress-like feeling to the place. They told locals in the nearby town of Antelope that they planned to revitalize the land, start a farm there, and maybe a small retreat for their fellow Rajneeshis. But Ross says they clearly had a whole lot more in mind from the beginning. I mean, all of a sudden, thousands of people are appearing. They bought a compound that's approximately 100 square miles, and they're building 
without permits, without proper zoning, and they're building a city. And whenever people in Wasco County and Antelope are saying to them, what are you doing? You told us that you were just a retreat. You didn't tell us you were going to build a city. The Rajneeshis are very antagonistic. They're saying, oh, you're persecuting us. You're hateful simply because they expected Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh and his followers to follow the same rules to build buildings and the same zoning requirements as everyone else. So eventually what you had was a kind of, of battle between the Rajneeshis and the locals that lived in the area and had been there for many years. The town of Antelope only had about 100 residents at the time, most of them older folks who had retired and come out to this tiny town because they wanted some peace and quiet to get away from the crazies in the city. So you can imagine their reaction when they started seeing hundreds of people in town in the bright red clothing, bringing all this heavy machinery, building materials through town, having sex at the local park out in the open, while they're meditating. And as for how they built their little utopia, not only did their Western followers bring plenty of money when they joined the group, but the Rajneeshis were careful to make the first group of residents of the commune people who had specific abilities. So they brought in people who had building experience, people who had experience in the American legal system, those who knew about farming, people who knew about logistics, all the ingredients you would need to create a self-sustaining society. That was an interesting group. Over 80% of the people that were members of the Rajneeshi group in the U.S. were college graduates. I think about 25 to 30% had postgraduate degrees. And there were many trust babies, people that had large trusts that lived off of those trusts from wealthy families. Jean Kirkpatrick, who was the ambassador to the United Nations, her son was in Rajneeshpura. Ironically, Leo J. Ryan's daughter, the man who was a United States congressman who was killed by a cult in Jonestown, his daughter was in Rajneeshpura. So there were many, many people that were coming from all over the U.S. that were moving into Rajneeshpura, and many of them from wealthy families. And some of those families contacted me reaching out for help. That's the thing about this cult is that what they were able to accomplish, like when you look at this huge piece of property and you have these really intelligent people who are like, hey, with these engineers, like, how do we make a dam? How do we make? I mean, they were putting in long and hard hours because part of the whole thing they were selling was, you know, doing hard work was a part of the meditation. So it's like they had signed up for this ideal, this utopia. And it's like when you look at what I mean, what they accomplished was amazingly impressive. So I could see how people would be like, yeah, this is where I'm going to go. And this is what I'm going to do. And this is so great. But it's just under the underbelly, of course, with all these stories is that there's you a know, cost. There's, there's a cost. And it's going to be a high one. Yeah. So they not only had people coming in who had a lot of skills that they could use, who had money that they could use, but these people were all working for free. I mean, they would get room and board, but it was very <laughs> sparse accommodations. Most of these folks, especially well, early that on. That was part of the thing. You got to live simply. No, not. No, that's that's the crazy part is no, they didn't all live simply. Really? Most of the leaders had fancy mansions. OK, the leaders. And that's the thing, too. Right. This is not equal. This right. is not equality and here. It's capitalism. Right. <laughs> ding, ding, ding. OK. So, so most of the people who came in when you first got there, you were staying in tents if you had shelter at all. Those are the ones that don't have money to bring, but they have labor. Even if you have money to bring, they said they would. Basically, you had to prove yourself. You had to work your way up. And so one of the ways to do that was to, to work on the community. But they all worked away happily. They continued showing their support for their beloved leader and giving him lavish gifts, including gold watches, diamond jewelry, fancy cars. Over the years, the Bagwan amassed at least 90 Rolls Royces. And he once said he had a goal of having 365 of them so he could drive a different Rolls every day. Would you follow that kind of spiritual leader? <laughs> I, I don't. Uh, I think I would follow this idea of 
like, let's take away the bureaucracy of having to have all these permits and having to have all this approval and let's just roll up our sleeves and let's really build a great community and let's like, you know, be one with nature and all of that. But it's like, no, I mean, here you've got a guy driving 90 Rolls Royces with a goal of 365. I don't know how you get over that. But then you add in the mind control, which I'm sure you're going to get into. And I think it plays a huge huge role in this story. Yeah, I just uh, I, th- I feel like if you're going to have that much money, you're going to have that many things. 365 of the same car. <laughs> you couldn't get a little more creative than that. Just my own opinion. Yeah. Well, the folks in Antelope and other parts of Wasco County thought that these new neighbors, they were a little odd, but, you know, they just wanted to stay out of their way. They just wanted to live their own lives, hope the Rajneeshis would keep to their own land, keep away from town. Unfortunately, that didn't happen. The first issue that came up was about the water. The commune had diverted a river to create a reservoir on their land. And of course, that impacted the farmers and ranchers who were all around them. The group also had started some commercial operations in efforts to be self-sustaining. Not only were they growing their own food, but they were making their own clothing. They had opened stores and restaurants. They had their own medical clinic. So the neighboring landowners got the county involved and went after them for zoning violations. By this time, the commune had a few thousand people living there, way more than that tiny town of Antelope. So the Rajneeshis took advantage of their lawyers' expertise and decided if they couldn't get the permits to do what they wanted on their own land because of the rural zoning, they would just start doing business in Antelope. Over several months, they slowly started buying homes and other property in town until when it was time for the next election, they actually had a majority of the votes. They installed a Rajneeshi as the mayor of Antelope, thinking that would put a stop to the battle between the town and the commune. But that just made those residents angrier. And And there's only like 60 of them, right? Yeah, there's probably about 60 at this point. I think at the low point, there was 40 people left in town. Yeah. So the residents were angry. They were fearful of what the group might do next. They'd already taken over the valley. Then they'd taken over the town. What could be next? In my opinion, Rajneesh was evil. He had little empathy or sympathy for other people. He had no conscience, in my opinion, about who he hurt. He was a con man. But unlike most con men who take the money and run, he ran the same con on the same people indefinitely. And this is about the time when Ross says he started getting those calls from family members of people who had been living in the Oregon commune. Very typical for a destructive cult to have a kind of weave a dichotomy. We are the good guys and anyone who is outside of our group, they can be tolerated, but not if they're critical, not if they ask troubling questions and don't agree with us. And I saw that happening from the complaints that I received from families who raised questions about loved ones who were moving to Rajneeshpuram and who were being cut off, who were being told, well, you're just a bigot, you don't understand, and so there was no more communication. And many of them lost a great deal of money. And again, this is part of the story that they don't really tell in that docuseries on Netflix. They interviewed a lot of former members of the commune, but only high-level people who were living in those mansions. They didn't really talk with any of the worker bees or people who were just brought in for their money. They also didn't talk about the techniques that Bagwan would use to control them. And in fact, there's a documentary called Captive Minds that was made by the Canadian Broadcast Corporation back in the 80s, and they actually filmed Rajneesh in the ashram in Pune to illustrate how coercive persuasion and influence techniques are used to gain undue influence over people. Here the sannyasins stay in a commune 24 hours a day, surrounded by new friends, a new family, a new society. They all wear clothes of orange and are given a new name. All of this weakens their sense of former identity. Now they are told to look at themselves afresh using one-on-one therapy sessions and hours of meditation. It forces you to encounter yourself, your fidgetiness, your restlessness, your ugliness, your madness. It forces you to see all the rubbish that you are carrying within yourself. And that is one of the most essential steps. If you want to go beyond anything, first you have to encounter it. 
without encountering it there is no transcendence. Jesus says, unless you are born again, you will not enter into my kingdom of God. This is the birth he is talking about. And this is the birth I am talking about. This is what sannyas is. A process of rebirth. A process of being born again. A complete change of environment and personal habits is key to any personality change. When the sense of identity is shaken, people become more suggestible, and the time is ripe for an authority figure to step forward and tell them what to do, what to believe, what is right, what is wrong. So what Rajneesh did was he used hypnotic transinduction, he used chanting, he had a, a form of breathing exercises where people would basically go into a trance state where they would disassociate from everything around them. And then Rajneesh would suggest things while they were in this hypnotic trance state. And they would be very suggestible. He also would encapsulate them in an environment that he controlled. Everything that they read, everything they heard, everything they saw, they were isolated socially so that he could control everything that was going into the mind and in that way begin to control the mind itself. And so what you see in many of these groups that are very extreme, like the Rajneeshis, is they have a, a community in which they shut out the outside world. And in that bubble, they don't get alternate feedback. They don't get different perspectives. They only are sitting there having the program that Rajneesh determines downloaded into their mind. As I was listening to all this and, and just thinking about what this would be like, it so reminded me of, of the echo chambers that we always talk about on social media. And there's a new one. I don't know if you've seen this. Um, there's a social media site that is now being championed by ultra conservative groups called Parlor. I haven't, but I'm not surprised. But as I was listening to it, it's like the peer pressure. They're breaking you down. I mean, it's this is all bread and butter not only for the Rajneesh, but like any kind of gaslighting situation where it's like the first thing to do is just to break you down. Mm -hmm. And then you go in and you're like, I can fix it. You know, Rajneesh is the one that can go in and fix it. And then everybody else is on board and you're not getting any feedback from anybody else. And that's it. And it's, it's like that. this mind control. And you can. And, and I think in the past I've thought this and I know people probably feel the same or maybe they don't. But like you wonder, how can somebody give the control of their mind to somebody else? This is how. Yeah. This is how. Well, and when you're completely surrounded by people who are over and over again saying the same thing, you start to believe it's true. Yeah. You know, I mean, if I sat here and said, I'm a blonde, 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 you might start wondering, is she a blonde? Well, and then I start <laughs> chanting. And then, I mean, I was getting relaxed as I was listening to him, too. You could tell in the cadence of his voice if people are like in kind of a, it, it's it's very woo-woo, but it obviously is, it works. Yeah, there's and, a reason and it we works. keep seeing this. And yes. And this. it's a different, you know, every time it's a different type of a cult leader. But even the parallels with just kind of the hubris of this group coming in, thinking they are, you know, hey, you better get on our program or we're going to we're going to F with you, you know, to the townsfolk who are like, hey, you guys kind of stay on your range. We're going to do our thing. But it's like the, the lack of respect. Of course, they're going to be mad at you if you start having sex in the park and like or in the night, you know, they're, they're having sex and they have to hear it. And it's like, hey, if you're a part of having the sex, you're having fun. But if you have to hear it and you're like a grandpa, like, is that something you really want to kids or you have kids? Like, yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, we've been talking a lot no, about nothing against grandpas not having sex. I'm just saying, like, <laughs> I just want to be clear. I'm not dissing on grandpas. I'm just saying there's a lack of respect with them coming in and taking over 
and dominating. Yeah. So we've been talking about how they created the commune and how they brought in their devotees. They rubbed townspeople the wrong way. But aside from the zoning violations, it doesn't really sound like there's been any criminal activity, nothing really serious, right? Well, the Rajneeshis claimed that they were once again being the victims of religious persecution. And there were times that Mashila would appear on prominent news shows like Nightline. And she would have to be censored because she would go into these uh, scream fests where she would curse, use uh, really offensive language, insulting the host, insulting the people in Oregon. And always you would hear the same thing. You know, they're all bigots, they're hateful, et cetera, et cetera, as if they had done nothing wrong, as if they had not done anything to provoke the situation. And the commune just kept getting bigger and bigger. So the county started trying to force the group to comply with the zoning laws. They threatened to bulldoze their illegal buildings. The Rajneeshis decided that they needed a new strategy. Instead of taking over leadership just in Antelope, they wanted to take over Wasco County by installing at least two of their members on the county council. They already had several thousand people who could vote in the upcoming election, but Wasco County is a lot bigger than just the tiny town of Antelope. So they sent out buses and started actively recruiting people from the streets of New York, L.A., and Chicago, other big cities around the country. They'd invite people living on the streets to come back with them to Oregon, promising not only a warm place to sleep, but acceptance in a community that could appreciate them and love them, no questions asked. The only thing the Rajneeshis did ask in return was that their new friends registered to vote in the upcoming Wasco County election. But they ran into trouble when those busloads of formerly homeless individuals showed up at the county clerk's office. She declared that because they had suspected fraud, they would not be allowing any more voter registrations until after the election, when they could do interviews with each of those individuals in the group one-on-one, make sure they were coming for the right reasons, that they really planned to make Oregon their home. This may have been the tipping point for the Rajneeshis. If they couldn't increase the number of people voting for their candidates, they'd just have to cut down the number who were voting for the opposition. Historically, the first act of bioterrorism in the history of the United States was committed by the followers of Bhagwan Tri Rajneesh. What they did was they poisoned salad bars in restaurants with salmonella across the area that people were voting. And many, many people were hospitalized and sickened by this, hundreds. And their ultimate intent was to contaminate the water system in the area as well. And this this first act of terrorism was the beginning of what they saw as a, as a protracted plan at dominating the government in that area. So they timed the salmonella poisoning to coincide with the election, hoping that hundreds of people would be too sick to go to the polls. In the end, 751 people became seriously ill, but it still wasn't enough. There was a record voter turnout in Wasco County that year, and the Rajneeshis failed to get the votes they needed. Because of the nature of this attack and the fact that it was the first of its kind in the U.S., at first, local health officials and even the CDC blamed restaurant workers because historically, that's how salmonella spread. It's found on some animals and in feces, and it can easily be transferred to food if people don't wash their hands properly. But as the scope of the epidemic became apparent, they started looking at other possibilities, and they started hearing these stories from the folks in Antelope about their town's takeover. That led them to serve a search warrant at the commune, where they not only found evidence of the plan to poison the public, but samples of the exact salmonella strain that was making people sick. It was inside a laboratory at the commune's health center. The feds also found hours and hours worth of wiretaps that had been made by commune leadership, presumably at the demand of Sheila. When confronted with the overwhelming amount of evidence, the Bhagwan himself said, Sheila must have done it. She was jealous because he was becoming friendly with a woman from California who was the wife of a famous film producer, very wealthy, and a woman who would later become Sheila's replacement. I challenge Sila if she has any guts, then come here and face me. 
An arrest warrant was issued for Sheila, but she had already fled the country, going to Germany with about a dozen of her most ardent followers. But Ross says that he doubts Sheila should be the one shouldering the blame. My Sheila became a devotee of Bhagwan when she was very young. She worshipped him. She loved him as many of his followers did. And she would do anything for him. And he exploited that loyalty, in my opinion. And he basically used her as a fall woman to cover up his own guilt and what was going on, because I don't believe that anything went on in Rajneeshpuram without the approval of Bhagwan Tri Rajneesh. He was an absolute authoritarian figure. His followers implicitly understood that he was the absolute and final word on anything. And the idea that Mashila acted alone and that she was somehow a wild agent on her own, that she had gone rogue, I just don't believe that. I think that everything that she did or said was approved by Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh. And that at any time, if he wanted things to be different, he would just simply say so and she would obey him without question. I just have to have to ask a question. Did she were they sexually a couple or did you I don't know. Because that's another thing that they didn't have during that, well, that documentary there, where it seemed like... There was some mention of it at the very end. I don't know if you got to this part, the very end of the documentary where the Bhagwan says, basically, they didn't have sex even though she wanted to. This but guy. I, you know, She's jealous. Like, yeah, yeah. I don't know. Sheila was eventually extradited back to the U.S. She was sentenced to three separate 20-year terms in federal prison, but only served a little over two years. She was released for good behavior, and she's actually not in the U.S. anymore. She's back in Europe now. But the feds did not have any evidence to directly link the Bagwan to the salmonella poisonings. What they did have, though, was evidence of immigration fraud. When the spiritual leader first came to America, he got a visa for health reasons. He stated that he needed medical treatment that wasn't available to him in India, but he overstayed his visa. He never actually got any kind of treatment. And in the end, he was deported back to India back to the same ashram that he had fled several years earlier. That he still had followers all over the world that continued to seek him out. Well, I think Bhagwan fostered a feeling of spiritual elitism in which he basically felt that he was the most enlightened guru on the planet. He was the great master teacher. Uh, he would talk about how the teachers touch and he would massage the third eye on the forehead of his followers vigorously to activate their spiritual awareness. And he would say the touch of the master, the golden touch, is what this is all about, that I am the key ingredient that you need in your life. And the devotees felt that ingredient made them a kind of elite, an elite spiritual group that was above and beyond other people. And that's why you see the way that they, the, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, the way that they would, in the documentary, they had their own police force. They were wearing purple, which was kind of interesting to see these police officers armed. But they're not police officers, but they're... They they call them peace officers. Yeah, but they yeah. weren't peaceful. And it's like... No, they, not they, at all. Yeah. I mean, they just thought they were better than everybody. And it's like, that, that seems to go against what you would think a commune and healthy living and peace love and we it wasn't that kind of a place well there was so much criminal activity that i didn't even include in the story because you know you could go on for hours and hours and hours and hours other things that they did included um, illegal weapons which you know they're a peaceful group right they're supposed to be all about peace love and happiness well they said you know well we need these weapons to protect ourselves because the townspeople are getting all uppity against us and so we need to be able to protect ourselves so they traveled to other states to buy weapons illegally they actually wound up with a bigger cache of weapons than even the state police in Oregon wow it was crazy they also were drugging people without their knowledge they were spiking the beer that they were giving out to people at the commune with, um, I think it was like a Valium. It was some kind of downer so that they, they would be, you know, chill and mellow, especially once they brought in all those homeless people from all over the country. There was so much illegal activity happening, but it's a matter of like proving it and tying it to a particular individual. When everything's communal property and communal activity, it's really hard to do that. And that would have been nice to get those kind of boots on the ground 
interviews that you were talking about where the people that were actually hearing these conversations like, yeah, what we're going to do is we're going to create some salmonella in our lab and then we're going to go and we're going to do that. You know, how did that conversation go down and why why did she only get two years? I mean, a lot of people got really sick. I think a lot of people felt like she was scapegoated. And that the bag one was really behind it. And and they felt like, you know, she shouldn't have a worse punishment than he did. Hmm. But, I mean, that's total speculation on my part. On January 19th, 1990, the bag died from what the doctors describe as heart failure, but which his followers described as an unwillingness to live on this earth any longer. Still, the ashram in India is there. It's still selling those Bhagwan t-shirts and self-help books, still teaching his unique brand of meditation and sexual awareness. As for that property in Oregon, the Rajneeshis slowly wandered off and the ranch was eventually sold to a church youth group that now uses it as a summer retreat. And you might be wondering, how do you spot the difference between a typical religious group, which has rules and expectations that they have of their followers, and a cult that uses religion for control? Ross has some suggestions. If you're getting involved in an organization How is it governed? Is it a dictatorship or are there checks and balances? Is there democratic governance? Is there an elected board? Is there financial transparency? Do you know where the money goes that you contribute? How do you know? Do you know what the leader receives in total compensation? These are questions that you can ask that are very objective, that are based on fact, that if you're not getting reasonable answers that show that the organization is transparent and the leadership is accountable, that's a problem. And if you're in a group and you're made to feel that whenever you raise a question, whenever you criticize something that's going on, ultimately you must be wrong and the leader is always right, that's a warning flag. If the group does not acknowledge criticism, and doesn't accept criticism and instead characterizes it as persecution, that's a warning flag. If there's no legitimate reason to leave the group and people who leave are traitors, they're, they're failures, they're, they're spiritually bankrupt, this is also a warning sign. I mean, people come and go from churches and organizations all the time. People shouldn't be stigmatized because they feel they need to leave for whatever reason. I really like his specific ways of identifying a cult versus a religious group. But what if it's not you? What if it's your family member you're worried about or a friend? Ross says you have to approach the issue very carefully so that you don't scare them off and make them cling even tighter to this new group. Don't tell them they're in a cult. Don't be confrontational. Don't argue with them and make negative critical remarks. Instead, try to be positive and do your homework and drill down and find out more about the group. I would suggest reading my book, Cults Inside Out. It covers everything, including how to stage an intervention to help a loved one get out. Another thing that I'd recommend is go online. The database at culteducation.com, it's free to the public. And he says, if there's anything that we learn from the Rajneeshis, it's that you can't be afraid to speak up. For a long time, Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh and his people just got away with it. If no one is willing to speak up, evil will go on. Yeah, I mean, it's... it's... <laughs> Simple, but it it does go on because when he was like rattling off, and I don't mean to use the word rattling, but he's like talking about do this and do that. And people who are in these cults are like they're wooed. The people that are inside the cult bring them to dinner, for example, and suddenly they're the the pinnacle at the the head of the table and everybody wants to know how you're doing and everybody wants is interested in your life. I mean, how many times do you go to a dinner party when you where you feel that way? Most of the time it's like, you know, you're listening to somebody else and 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 that's how they get them in where the, it's a, it's like kind of a collective where you're suddenly the special and then they break you down after that. So they they put you on this pedal. It's kind of like the spider in the spider's web, you mm-hmm. know, where you're trapped and then it, it it's it's a real mind You know, it really is. And I could see why it's hard for families to get them out because they could say, well, you just don't get it. You're just you're not enlightened like me. You know, you're whatever. And I could see where it would make sense to have a third party come in and try to help with this conversation, because 
if you're a family member, a known family member, and the cult has known about you, they may have poisoned the well with your family member about, you know, saying evil things about why you're bad, about why your family member shouldn't have anything to do with you. Whereas, you know, if you have a third party come in who's sort of a neutral unknown, mm-hmm. they might might maybe be able to worm their way in there. I don't know. I, I, I definitely think it is going to – it's a tricky situation. I don't know how families deal with it. If it happened to somebody in my family, it would be really hard for me not just to run over there and smack somebody upside the head and say, stop it. Yeah. I mean, uh, just watch The Vow and you can see how effective that is. I can't even watch that. No. Oh, my gosh. I watched the whole thing. Mm -mm. Yeah. I've seen the previews. I can't do it. What's interesting about that is it's a different kind of thing, but it's like the way that the guy was talking, it's like you don't even really understand what he's saying, but he acts like he's such a at a higher level of being and he's so much more intelligent than everybody else. And then everybody else just kind of is like, yeah, yeah. Speaking of, what did you think of the tone in the background's voice and the way that he talked? I thought it was a very interesting cadence. Well, in the cut where it was kind of more melodic. And, and I think you could, that's you could actually it. how he spoke most of the time. But when it was that long pause, like, I'm like, how did people? But see, I kind of my mind just turns it off because I, as someone who was in a commune, like I can hear it. I can feel it. I can see it. I'm more skeptical to like people who think that they have the answers. I always like to just understand why people do what they do. And I think it's, you know, knowledge is power and kind of understanding um, instead of like acting like someone is like an idiot for doing it. But like, why? Why did they do it? Because I think that's helpful. And especially, you know, these cult leaders, they just keep popping up, you know? I mean, and the crazy thing is, Ross was saying that there are actually probably more cults today than there were back in the 80s when this happened. And part of the reason is because a lot of them have just moved online. Exactly. And it's so easy it's to lure now more. I know. Yes. So, you know, I mean, knowledge is power. So what do you have coming up for next week? I don't know. Let's not. Okay. Let's not. Yeah. I, I know what I have, but That's I don't okay. know. If, anyway. So. Listeners, thank you for your support. Um, <laughs> please go online and leave a five star review. Dong. That's my chime. That's your dong. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. And I'm... send us $100. <laughs> <laughs> okay. At SueTheGreatPodcast.com. We have a PayPal account set up. Just kidding. Oh, my gosh. That's so funny. I'm Kim Shepard with Carolyn Osorio. We are your gurus here at Scene of the Crime. <laughs> <laughs>